4: Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
2: The following podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all listeners. Some of the people you're about to hear were recorded over a course of time in our investigation by a combination of phone calls and in-person interviews. So audio quality will vary.
5: Was this an attempted murder by Diane trying to kill Bob? Was this Diane trying to commit suicide? Was this Bob trying to kill Diane? Was it just a situation where they were both... Drunk and confused and arguing and Diane got the gun out and nobody really had any intention to do anything in particular with it. But they fought over it or struggled over it or whatever and it went off. It seems to me that it is truly anybody's guess at some point as to what happened in the instant before that gun went off.
6: and he picked up a gun, and he shot her.
4: Not a single person that knows my family thinks that
5: he did this. He was a very smart person, but the other side was the nasty side. This is not a murder. This is the opposite of a murder scene.
4: If this was some tragic accident, wouldn't he have tried to look for a pulse? There is not physical
0: evidence, and you have a trail of people who didn't do their goddamn job.
5: There's a verdict in the murder trial of Isleworth millionaire Bob Ward. Damn
2: it! Do you think this was an accident or a murder? I I really can't say.
3: From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, Mystery at the Mansion a nine-part podcast that takes a deep dive into the story of a family torn apart. A trial turned into a media spectacle and investigates the mystery. What really happened to Diane Ward? On the morning of September 15th, 2011, tensions ran high as the trial of the state of Florida versus James Robert Ward got underway in Orlando.
2: The courtroom which is located on the 23rd floor of the Orange County Courthouse, had been the focal point of the public's outrage over the Casey Anthony acquittal just weeks earlier.
3: Like Casey Anthony, there were those convinced of Bob's guilt. But Bob also had supporters who believed this was just a horrible accident. Both sides were anxious to find out what evidence there was and what it could reveal.
2: Would it prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Bob Ward had shot his wife in the face in a fit of anger.
3: Or would evidence show that the gun had been discharged accidentally, and the only thing Bob was guilty of was trying to get the gun out of Diane's hands?
2: Prosecutors directed the jury's attention to the night of Monday, September 21st, 2009, the night Bob Ward called 911 for help.
3: Into the Ward's $4 million estate in Isleworth, Florida where the night in question unfolded. I spoke with Robin Wilkinson, the lead prosecutor in the case, about their process of discovery. And as far as evidence at the scene, can you walk me through the scene to the best of your recollection?
4: It was a beautifully well-maintained, very immaculate kept home, except for out in a patio area, there is a broken wine glass and what looks like a wine stain.
2: The wine stain Robin is referring to here is spilled wine on the ground of the patio. Inside the couple's kitchen, she says, there was more evidence.
4: There's an open bottle of wine that's on the counter that certainly had been, people had been drinking out of. There's some empty wine bottles in the trash.
6: They were having some drinks and we don't know how much alcohol they had consumed. A bottle could have been in there for a day or two.
3: That's Ken Lewis, a former assistant state attorney, who worked with Robin prosecuting the case.
6: But you knew there was some alcohol consumed because you had the wine, you had the broken glass, you had the wine on the back of of Bob Ward's shirt. And it's a a situation where you don't get wine there through your own efforts on the back of your shirt.
2: The wine on the back of Bob's shirt is visible in photographs taken shortly after the shooting. You can see a purplish stain essentially splashed across the lower back section of his white polo shirt.
3: To the state, the only logical explanation was that Diane had thrown a glass of wine at Bob, which led them to another assumption.
4: Something occurred between Bob and Diane that caused Diane to throw a wine glass towards Bob in which the glass is broken.
6: You're not there, you don't know what happened, but when, you, when you're piecing it together, that was projected there by somebody else in anger. So that suggests an argument, okay? Of course, obviously, we don't have an auditory recording of their exchange, but then you have a situation that apparently escalated into the bedroom.
4: It's not until you go up to the bedroom that really anything is in a disarray. On the bed itself, there's a transfer of wine stain, where it appears as if Bob, who had a stain on the back of his shirt, had been sitting on the bed
2: The transfer wine stain had been spotted on the bed sheet on Bob's side of the bed.
4: So we believe he's at least lying down or sort of in a slumped somehow on the bed.
3: Diane's body had also been found on Bob's side of the bed.
6: So you have some situation where she comes in and they have some type of exchange. And I know there's no signs of a struggle, but he just lost it up there is my belief.
2: What do you think happened and how did he get the gun? Well, the
6: gun, I believe, was in his nightstand. It's in his, his drawer by the bed. Most people that have a firearm keep it in their nightstand in case they're awoken by something and they have quick access with it. So he either had it out and was just going to, like, scare her or make a point, or she came up, they argued, he snapped, Got the gun and shot her. So it's one of those two theories because he was so angry as to what had happened there.
3: Bob's defense team, led by Kirk Kirkonnell, countered the state's scenario by telling the jury that the broken wine glass and the wine stains on the patio, shirt, and bed sheet were not what the state said they appeared to be.
2: They were more likely to be accidental spills. Quoting Kirkconnell here, he said, They say not to speak ill of the dead. But Diane was a clumsy person. Her family will describe her as a klutz.
3: Here's Sarah Ward, who by the time of the trial had turned 21. Here's how she and the rest of the family interpreted the wine stains. She typically drank at least one bottle of red wine a night. And red wine kind of would make her kind of loopy. And my mom spilled wine all the time. She would literally just like sit in bed and play mahjong and spill her wine. I mean, it was, there was wine everywhere all the time being spilled. So it's not unusual to me that she would have walked inside, tripped. What I think happened is he woke up because wine was spilled on him. She had probably already gone in. He cleaned up a little bit, threw away a
4: bottle of wine, cleaned up his martini glasses, and then went upstairs.
2: One of Bob's defense attorneys, James Fellman, argued that even if Diane had thrown the wine on Bob's back, it still did not support the state's hypothesis on how Bob allegedly carried out the murder.
5: To begin with, we know from the physical evidence that Mr. and Mrs. Ward started their evening downstairs. They were out on their back patio drinking together. We know this. We know this because there's several empty bottles of wine in the garbage can in the kitchen, who commits a murder by getting their victim to follow them to the gun? No, people who commit murders go get the gun and they find the victim and they shoot him. And when she is shot, she's right next to his bed. And if she can leave the room easily, anytime she wants, he can't.
3: With two viable, yet very different scenarios of what happened with the wine on the patio, we are still not any closer to figuring out what happened that night. As the state starts laying out their case through the physical evidence, their number one mission was to prove to the jury that it was Bob who fired the gun.
2: To do this, they introduced a wide variety of gun-related evidence, starting with GSR, or Gunshot Resident.
3: GSR is a combination of microscopic particles that spray out of a gun when the bullet is ejected.
6: So basically what you can tell with a GSR is not if somebody shot a gun, but if somebody is in proximity to a gun being shot. And that's because it transfers so easily and because parts of the body are constantly in motion. So with that particular case, there isn't really a doubt that he's in the room or he's in close proximity to to, to, her, to a gun being fired at that particular point.
2: Regardless, the investigators did do the GSR testing, And here's what they found.
4: I think there was some slight evidence on her, but if she was in the vicinity of the gun going off, that's not a surprise. There was certainly less on Bob. In fact, when the expert who did the analysis took
3: the stand, he revealed that there was a trace amount on Diane's left hand, one particle to be precise. And on Bob's hands, there was none.
2: Which begs the question, if Bob was the shooter, or was in the proximity of the gun being discharged, wouldn't that mean Bob should have gunshot residue on his hands?
7: You have a situation here where there were several minutes, 20-something minutes, I don't know how many minutes when the police arrived. If you look at from the time of the shooting, and then he's on 911, he says it happened five minutes ago, and then he's out front, no idea as to whether he washed his hands, wiped his hands, what he touched.
3: Was there any evidence that he maybe washed his hands at the scene?
4: I mean, he's the one who initiates the call, so he's the one who is initiating the timing. He could easily wash his hands.
3: The defense notes that there is no evidence for this and that Bob denies washing his hands at all.
7: Now, she wouldn't have had any opportunity to wipe her hands, but there was one particle on her if she was the trigger person, you would expect much more. So the only thing the GSR did in the case was disprove her as somebody that was the shooter. and That's my analysis of the gunshot residue. There's just so much speculation because there's so much uh, that could have happened to affect the GSR results. Much more so with him than her, which is why it's much more likely that he fired the gun based on the GSR, even though no GSR was found on him.
3: On the stand, the prosecutors also had the GSR experts say what the average number of GSR particles on the hands of those who have committed suicide with a gun. On average, it's 35.
2: The defense countered that there was absolutely no scientific basis for a claim such as that. Here's James Fellman again.
5: It is inconceivable that a gunshot residue expert would have the ability to scientifically tell you the amount of residue from a suicide versus a homicide. And nevertheless, they elicited from their gunshot residue expert that he would have expected to see more gunshot residue there if this had been a suicide. That's not admissible testimony. That's not science. The defense objected to the claim,
2: and the judge sustained it. But not before the jury heard it.
3: The defense also pointed out how flawed the GSR testing on Diane was. When conducting testing on the deceased, it's standard protocol to put protective bags around the hands so all evidence on the hands will remain intact while being transported to the coroner. Dr. Joshua Stephanie, one of the medical examiners in the case, talked to me about how it was done. When Diane was brought in, were her hands bagged?
8: Yes. Anytime there's a gunshot wound, or um, suspicious trauma, even with potential suicides, my uh, investigators will, will bag the hands. We have the kits in our office, and if gunshot residue is requested, it's a very special kit, and the hands will be blotted front and back, between the fingers, on the, on the wrists, on the thumbs, and we'll collect that again, and then seal it, and law enforcement will pick that up for possible testing.
2: The problem is that police appear to have overlooked some of the evidence that could have been tested. Here's James Feldman again
5: they put bags on her hands, and they didn't test the contents of the bags. They just took the bags off and then tested her hands, and they probably would have been well-served to test the contents of the bags as well. But, oh, it's not helpful to us that she's got gunshot residue on her hands.
3: Moving Diane's body from her bedroom to the morgue would have subjected her hands to lots of shaking and vibration. But because the bags that covered her hands were never tested, it's unknown whether or not more gunshot residue would have been discovered.
2: The bottom line, as the defense pointed out in court, was the fact that there was GSR on Diane's hand and none on Bob. And to the defense, that made Diane the more likely shooter.
3: As we're looking through these trial transcripts and talking to those involved, it's becoming apparent that the evidence so far was interpreted by either side to tell their version of what happened and there certainly was no proverbial smoking
2: gun yet. But the state had more gunshot evidence to present.
4: I think it was the angle of the wound. I think that was some of the linchpin of why it was a murder, why it wasn't an accident, why it wasn't suicide.
2: Shortly after sheriff's deputies arrived at the Ward's Isleworth mansion on the night of September 21st, they discovered the body of Diane Ward in the couple's turret-shaped master bedroom.
3: She was lying on her side with a pool of blood around
2: her head. And several feet away from Diane was the gun, the murder weapon. A Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum, right where Bob Ward told the 911 operator it would be found.
4: The gun was found in the drawer in the nightstand. A holster was left on top of the nightstand.
3: Bob told deputies that he had only moved the gun to the nightstand for safety reasons after Diane dropped to the floor. And that left prosecutors with the mystery of who had their hand on the gun when it went off.
2: Prosecutors thought one of the most compelling pieces of evidence was the stippling that was visible on Diane's face
3: stippling is caused by burnt and unburnt particles of gunpowder striking the skin. Looking at Diane's autopsy photos, the stippling almost resembles blackened freckles. Tiny burns, not in any particular pattern, but with the largest concentration near the bullet wound in the center of Diane's face. They spread out from there, becoming less and less concentrated. Here's Dr. Joshua Stephanie again, who conducted the autopsy on Diane.
8: What was interesting to us was the stippling. We don't always get that. If someone has shot greater than three feet away, you're not going to get that. Measure the spread pattern and the density. The closer you are to the end of the barrel of the gun, the more compact, the more dense the stippling is. The farther out you get, the more it scatters and spreads out.
2: What investigators try to do is replicate the pattern found on the victim with the actual weapon used.
8: The way that was done is I work with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, who's got a gun range in town. And we set up testing using 9 by 9 inch cotton twills, or little square fabrics, at different distances, about 6-inch intervals. When we did the test firing, we did it in triplicate, starting at 6 inches all the way to 30 inches.
3: This distance was critical because the defense had told the jury that Bob had been struggling to get the gun out of Diane's hands when it accidentally went off. And it was Diane who pulled the trigger and shot herself in the face. This meant the distance had to be close enough for Diane to be able to pull the trigger herself.
2: The state showed the jury images from the cotton twill test at the different ranges. It was clear six inches was much too close to match the pattern on Diane's face. And 24 inches was too far away. The prosecution's experts said that the stippling pattern created by a gun blast from 18 inches away was the most consistent with the stippling pattern on Diane's face.
8: Now is it 100% you know, the same as firing a, a live person's skin? No. I'm telling you from our testing pattern, that's the closest approximation we can give you. And I still give a range of where it could be. But I'm saying from our test firing, 18 inches is the closest approximation to the stippling pattern of the deceased's face. I spoke with
2: Ken Lewis about this as well. What made you feel that the gun was more likely 18 inches away from her face than closer?
6: the pattern anybody that impartially would look at these results would conclude without hesitation that it was much more consistent with 18 inches than any of the lesser denominations
2: also telling prosecutors informed the court was the lack of stippling on diane's eyelids and the fact that the medical examiner had found some stippling on her eyeballs
8: that tells me that her eyes were open at the time and normally if your shot with your eyes open, you don't know what's coming, because you, your eyes are open. If you, if you knew your, your, the shot was coming or you were shooting yourself straight on the forehead, uh, you probably have your eyes closed.
3: So when someone's eyes are open, you can deduce then that it's homicide or an accident.
8: You know, I can definitely tell her, her eyes were open when the shot came. I mean, that's just fact. Uh, and I can try to deduce that uh, she probably most likely did not know the shot was coming.
3: The state, for its part, concluded 18 inches was too big a distance for Diane to have been able to squeeze the trigger towards herself.
4: Diane Ward was 5'4", not very tall. She's not gonna have a huge wingspan. She has a gun with a fairly heavy trigger pull, and so it would be difficult for her to have her hand on the gun and to be 18 inches for the angle of which the bullet went
2: into her face. Trigger pull was another piece of physical evidence presented by the state. And they did so by first showing the jurors the gun, a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum. It's a five-shot revolver that weighs just under a pound. But for safety, the manufacturer has built into it a heavy 12-pound trigger pull. Can you explain
3: for just a layperson what a 12-pound trigger pull means?
2: There's
6: 12 pounds of pressure required in order to actually fire that gun. So it was a double-action weapon which created a substantial effort to fire.
3: In other words, a heavy trigger weight requires more effort from the finger, hand, and forearm.
6: So if you look at a situation where you have that type of gun, Diane Ward would have had no ability. It might have been possible that she fired the gun, but it would have defied common sense and reason based on the science. You had a 12-pound trigger pressure on that gun, so it it was a double-action weapon which, which, which created a substantial effort to fire. It doesn't accidentally go off when you have those components.
2: The defense countered that Diane wasn't weak, and it still remained a real physical possibility she could have pulled the trigger.
3: As far as the distance of the gun as determined by the stippling pattern, they argued that the pattern on Diane's face could have come from a closer distance. The state's experts could only really give a range of inches, no less than six, and probably no more than 24.
2: Defense attorneys dismissed the gunshot distance test as scientifically invalid, saying, To call it sloppy science gives it more credibility than it deserves.
3: 18 inches or not, the bottom line, according to the defense, was that the stippling or trigger pull could not prove for certain what really happened in the ward's bedroom. Are you able to differentiate whether or not one person pulled the trigger and shot someone head on, or if there was a struggle over a gun which caused it to discharge based on the wound itself?
8: No, I'll never
2: 100% say that. The state urged the jury to look at the big picture.
4: You can't pull one item of evidence and just look at it. You have to look at the totality, so then you also add the angle to her face.
3: The prosecutors say the angle at which the bullet penetrated Diane's face was another telling piece of physical evidence. The autopsy photos show no exit wound. The bullet stayed inside the skull although the autopsy did reveal where the bullet marked the back of the skull, but never broke skin. The entry wound was right next to and slightly above the left nostril. And the bullet did move, the left eye out of place.
8: Basically, the trajectory to her head was a straight line, you know, abrading the side of her nose and going straight front to back, really no up or down or left to right trajectory.
4: It was just slightly off from being a dead on shot. It went in towards the side of her nose, It ended up her eye was out from from the path of the bullet with a slightly upward trajectory. That told us that the gun was probably aimed almost directly at her, but with a slight upward motion.
2: The state told the jury that a dead-on shot was yet another piece of the puzzle that fit into their theory, the theory that Bob shot Diane deliberately. If he had been trying to get the gun away from her, What were the odds he shoved her hands into an angle that resulted
8: in lining up such a straight shot? Could that distance of 18 inches have occurred during a struggle? Yes, it's possible. But if you're struggling for a gun at a distance of 18 inches, you know, how likely is it that the trajectory is going to be straight on? You're looking at right down the barrel end of the gun with your eyes open.
2: Bob's daughters find this argument entirely unconvincing.
3: I mean, it fits with what happened, that he turned her hand away and the gun went off so her eyes would be open. I'm sure they were trying to say, well, if it was a suicide, she would close her eyes. But based on everything we know, it makes sense for them to
2: be open. The defense argued that trying to use the trajectory of the bullet to determine if there'd been a struggle or not was purely speculative. From an anatomical point of view, Diane's head could have been angled any number of ways as a result of the struggle. That made it impossible to characterize the shooting as a dead-on shot, or anything else for that matter.
3: But many of the intricate scientific details involved in all of this physical evidence presented in court were lost on some of those following the case. Here's journalist Drew Petrimo, who reported on the trial for WFTV. I
6: think the kind of overarching takeaway from the forensic evidence, and anytime you have forensic evidence, this is difficult, right, because you're having forensic experts talk about things that most ordinary people don't really know anything about. So I think the trajectory of the bullet and how it kind of came from straight on, right by her eye, traveled straight back, I think did the prosecution some favors.
3: As we try to put together the picture of a dead-on shot or a struggle, the biggest question remains, whose finger was on the trigger?
2: And if he thought it would be a simple matter of fingerprints or DNA, well, Nothing in this case has been simple so far.
3: Of all the pieces of physical evidence collected inside the ward's master bedroom on the night of the shooting, the most highly anticipated were the forensic results of the tests done to the Smith and Wesson revolver, in particular, DNA and fingerprint.
2: And the million-dollar question everyone hoped it would answer was, whose finger was on the trigger? However, things were not that easy because a fingerprint test would involve powder that would contaminate DNA evidence, and a DNA swab would smudge any fingerprint evidence. So a crucial decision had to be made.
3: So is it true that The CSIs who were conducting testing basically had to make a decision between fingerprint testing, the gun, or DNA testing.
4: Yeah, that was pretty much the decision they needed to make.
3: The decision was made to forego fingerprinting and do the DNA swab instead. Here is why, according to prosecutor Ken Lewis.
7: It's difficult, very difficult, and I I know this by sending off hundreds of firearms for fingerprints, and the percentage of fingerprints of value that you get on a gun is very minimal. There were also numerous scenarios when the gun was compromised by Mr. Ward afterwards where fingerprints could have been wiped off the
2: guns. So the CSI separately swabbed inside the barrel, the trigger, and the grip for DNA. Then sent each of the samples to the crime lab for analysis. Inside the barrel swab revealed nothing, meaning no blood or other DNA had projected back into the barrel upon firing.
3: When the test results came back from the other DNA testing, they showed one major contributor to the DNA, and potentially two smaller contributors. While the prosecutor's expert contended that the smaller contributors were too minimal to even determine gender, the major contributor of DNA on the gun was identified as Bob Ward.
2: Under cross-examination, the defense had the state's forensic DNA expert testify that the discovery really meant nothing. It was Bob's gun, and it wouldn't have been unusual to find his DNA on it.
6: There was no determination. So different inferences can be made from it, but in terms of of conclusively saying this happened or this didn't happen as a result of that, no.
3: The defense instead focused on the two other contributors of DNA on the gun, one of whose DNA the defense claims was consistent with Diane Ward's. However, While the defense implies one of the smaller contributors is Diane Ward, the prosecution makes it clear that what is being stated is that Diane Ward can't be eliminated from being one of those contributors.
6: There were low levels where she couldn't be ruled out that weren't scientifically conclusive, that could have been consistent with her having some of the DNA on the gun.
4: They had a defense expert who used to have worked for Florida Department of Law Enforcement who tried to testify to that Diane's profile was there, except for the fact that it was under what would normally be the standards that they use.
2: In other words, had the defense expert still been working at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, she wouldn't have been able to testify to that statement as it was based on evidence not meeting the minimum standards of law enforcement. The identity of the third contributor was unknown and remains a mystery to this day. A third possible shooter is not in question. Bob never claimed there were more than two people in that bedroom. The third DNA contribution could have come, for example, from the person who sold him the gun.
3: But the defense exposed another problem with the DNA.
2: The technician at the lab had combined the trigger and the grip swabs into one test tube, combining the evidence and losing any chance of figuring out which DNA was on which part of the gun.
6: Because it's it's so rare to get DNA on a gun because it has to be transferred. Unless you have blowback or something like that, you have these epithelial cells that actually, through friction, will come off on the gun. So oftentimes, they will try and swab as much as the gun as possible to get a sample that is great enough for, for a test result. If you don't have enough, you're gonna get inconclusive results.
2: The story that we got was that The two swabs, the one from the grip and the one from the trigger, were both placed in the same bag and mixed up.
6: My memory is that because they were trying to get, hopefully get enough quantity of DNA, the belief was, because DNA is so rare in getting off a trigger or a grip and getting on a gun, that the more you swipe of the gun, the more chances you're gonna get a conclusive result.
2: What would finding DNA on the grip have told us?
6: Well, it wouldn't have told us anything, because you don't know if, if, like, the night before, the gun was left out on the nightstand and she put it in his drawer. Then her DNA would be on the gun, and she might not have touched it that night. At the levels of her DNA that was on the gun, it really had no conclusive evidentiary value.
2: Could any inference have been made if there was DNA found on the trigger?
6: Well, same thing. I mean, it could have transferred in other ways onto the trigger in the same manners that I just described. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: The defense informed the jury that it was just as important to know that Diane's DNA was on the gun.
5: And it's not her gun, it's his gun. And she was not known to use it. Her DNA's on that gun because she was touching it that night. And, you know, that's what that tells us.
2: That's one of Bob's defense attorneys, James Fellman, on how the DNA discovery only strengthened Bob's case.
5: This is not a murder scene. This is the opposite of a murder scene. This is the victim chasing the perpetrator around the house aggressively to where the gun is, pinning him where he can't really go anywhere. And then there is whatever happened there by that gun. I'm left with this feeling that I don't know exactly what happened when the gun went off. I know that Bob and Diane are close to each other. We know the gun is somewhere between six and 18 inches away from her face when it goes off. All that tells me is we just don't know exactly what happened. And you can't convict somebody of murder when you don't really know what happened.
2: Hearing both sides of the physical evidence presented in the case so far, I honestly could go either way about it. Both sides came up with viable scenarios for what happened, and both sides poked reasonable holes in the other side's scenarios. And the other big part of the physical evidence, which we haven't touched on yet, is the blood spatter. And there was a lot of it.
3: Can we figure out what happened in that bedroom by looking at the blood? Can we understand the choreography of how a struggle or confrontation may have gone down by looking at the blood?
2: And with physical evidence not quite providing an answer yet, can we nail down a motive? Next time on Unravelled: Mystery at the Mansion. What are those patterns on the wall telling you? That is not gunshot spatter whatsoever. It's all This isn't? No, it's not gunshot spatter. That's blood coming out after the gunshot.
4: There is no physical evidence of a husband being distraught and like grabbing his wife who's down on the ground.
5: It is so stupid that it blows my mind that, that, that the state could make such an argument, that's not admissible testimony. That's not science.
3: My dad had the opposite of a motive on top of physical evidence proving that
5: he didn't do anything.
2: Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Kuntz along with myself, Billy Jensen, and Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing by Margaret Aronson and Mike Gattinella. Our editor is Corey Nye. The music and score that you have heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. Make sure to check for episode five next week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And it helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening and for your support.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.